Hi, I'm Kim Rudin. Welcome to Milo's Music Parlor, a live music speakeasy and podcast show brought to you by Milo Records New Orleans and itsneworleans.com. Every week we bring to you in our live audience a taste of the musicians who shaped the New Orleans music landscape, from the living legends to the young upstarts to those burgeoning national and international acts making the extra effort to stop here in New Orleans, all of whom are performing live music to enjoy the rich musical history of the city that continues to inspire and influence musicians everywhere. Milo's Music Parlor is a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. If you've ever watched a movie that takes place in whole or in part in Louisiana, you've probably heard David Doucet and Al Tharp playing the soundtrack. Current and former members, respectively, of the internationally recognized Creole Cajun band Beausoleil, this odd couple has their own thing going every Monday evening at the historic and haunted Columns Hotel. From old-time banjo ballads to Cajun waltzes, Alan David perform an endless repertoire of American folk music on fiddle, banjo, and guitar as it was truly meant to be heard. Friends for decades now, they're here on Milo's Music Parlor to play music and share some stories. I know. I'm, I'm excited you guys are here. Now I can ask you all the questions that we never had time to, like, because we were eating or playing tunes <laughs> or something. Um, you remember, the, the longer we go, the more we forget. <laughs> so we'll lie more. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> um, I, I just confessed to you before the interview, actually, that y'all, when you're both part of both Slay, were some of the first Cajun music I had ever listened to in my life. Uh, I dug you out from um, the basement of the New York Public Library, which actually has an amazing world and folk music collection. Does, yeah. yeah. Um, you both come from different backgrounds. You're from Scott, Louisiana. You were from Indiana. Indiana, original via, originally via Virginia. Born and raised Cajun, and then you meet this new guy. Yeah. How did how did that? <laughs> didn't he play like? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel something. very new anymore. <laughs> it's real simple. Yeah. We didn't have a PA system. And yeah. I remember the first time I met Al, we played mm -hmm. on the riverboat. I don't know where we found Al, but we were playing on a riverboat <laughs> in New Orleans. And you know, the rest of the, I was living here, so the rest of the guys drove in. It was a morning gig. I know it was. It was the independent record producers, like Rounder and all that. Rounder, convention, all the labels, yeah. convention. And they were on the... Cool. Cajun the, Queen or something. The president, I think. The president. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was the he president. had, there was a band playing, because it, it had its regular thing, then they had the, the party. And so Al had 15 minutes to load this stuff on that boat. And so <laughs> I, since I lived here, I was told, you know, go help Al meet this guy. <laughs> I'd met him once at the Maple Leaf. Yeah, I think he did sound for us at the Maple yeah. Leaf. So oh. we, we hauled all this junk on this boat, and it took off, and the, the band showed up. And then we had 15 minutes to unload the stuff. Yeah. So it was one of those, so that's how we got to be. And he, he was living on Washington yeah, Avenue at Magazine. Exactly. I'm still living in the same place behind Turo Infirmary. So I didn't, you know, it's like to live in the same area. And I did, who knew? The yeah. rest is history. Did yeah. you play Cajun music before you came here, Al? I did not. I did not. You, uh, and sure. I mean, I've listened to it much of my life, but no, I never had. You know, I, it was a regional music, and I, you know, I was not living here. I was living up, you know, in Virginia. And, you know, I was kind of had my little bailiwick, and it was something I listened to and admired and recognized a certain kind of kinship, but I wasn't, you know, I was not particularly seeking it out until we got to know these guys personally. And that what was your point. bailiwick? I was playing fiddle and banjo, old-time music from, you know, Appalachia, basically. Mm -hmm. And then y just listening to, you you loaded their equipment, and something happened Well, what happened was right? is that we were probably playing, oh, 180 gigs a year, and year after year, or gig after gig, I would remind my brother Michael, I said, you know, it'd be nice if we had a sound guy that would travel with us, mm -hmm. because then we could sound the same, you know, and blah, blah, and, but we'd have to pay that person. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, ask more money for the, you know, whatever. It was a problem. And, and in fact, I was digging around, I always look on YouTube if there's any 
any things on Bosley because I'm curious what we sound like since I never get to hear us. And uh, they've uploaded all the songs from the Austin City Limits show, which was oh. early Beausoleil. Yeah. It was, that was, Al had been the, right. it was doing like sound. It 88, I think. Yeah, yeah. and Jimmy Bro was first yeah. gig, really. First it was one, one of the, yes, it was. And uh, Al's playing uh, banjo, playing banjo but tenor banjo and uh, electric, electric guitar. He played fiddle too. So Al, then he and Mike would play double fiddles, guitar. twin fiddles. I did play a little bit of electric guitar, and then we all kinds of things. And then uh, later on, as you know, uh, bass player Tommy Como was he, he had a fairly serious day job. He was a physician, and he was able. That's a drag. He, yeah, well, he was pathologist. He was, he was a pathologist, and he, okay. you know, he but like it got people. to be he made. Yeah, he, yeah, <laughs> he was having to bow out on some gigs, and I would this sit on the bass. recorded, David. So. And then he finally decided that, you know, he couldn't really live quite that double life, and then I, I, I fill in on the bass slot and played bass and fiddle. So you so, had actually with you touring, uh, 180 days a year, you had a physician touring with you. Some of it. Most Not of, always. Much of it. Uh, he didn't play it all the A games. lot of times we went out as a five-piece with no bass, which mm -hmm. is like what the Lost Body Ramblers are, you know, in Louis Michaud's band. They don't have a bass player, anymore, or at least they anymore, didn't. Right? So we, 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 I remember once we, we were playing at a, <laughs> up northeast. Of course, I lived here, and the rest of the guys live in Lafayette, so we'd meet in Houston or something, you know. And I remember a baggage claim, like in Boston Airport, there was one gig where these conga cases came out, and that was Billy. Billy started playing congas. And then there was one where Tommy Elisi, who had been in my brother's original band when they were 13 years old, <laughs> Tommy was a drummer, all of a sudden all this drum stuff came through the baggage claim too so then we were a five piece mm -hmm. cardian fiddle guitar percussion and drums and then uh tommy was doing his residency here and then he got he wanted to live in lafayette so he got a job as a pathologist at lafayette so he could get off on weekends mainly we leave on thursday and come back sunday night that's basically what we do every weekend though Jeez. and uh so he started playing he always played mandolin and then realized it'd be kind of neat if he played bass. So he taught, like Al, they taught themselves how to play bass. They're not bassists. No, I've never and been so before. I played a little bit, but not certainly didn't consider it. Tommy neither. So, you know, that's so how it worked. The two of you, had you been musicians your whole life before you started playing and touring? Were you musically trained in school, or is it a no. family thing for your face grimaced? In this well, no, I, with me, I never knew I was, was going to play music. I remember my brother, went, you see, hippies became late in, Louis, in Louisiana, came yeah. late. It wasn't in the 60s, it was in the early 70s. And uh, Michael decided he wanted to be a hippie, and he, he, went, he went to uh, When to I go, grow up. That's exactly, he was at LSU and decided to do this, and he'd go uh, pick string beans in Washington and Walla Walla for a green giant, and left a guitar that happened to be in tune under the bed at my mom and dad's house where I was. And so I, I looked at the guitar and I had it was a Bob Dylan songbook and I figured out those little diagrams. Oh, that's guitar chords. So that's how I taught myself. Man, man. And I got into Paul Simon eventually because I liked the songs. And then, then I, had to, I had to know what Doc Watson was. And Michael was living in New Orleans and there was a great record store here called Leisure Landing. And he brought me an album of Doc Watson's. <laughs> side was scratched so I gave it back to him and he brought me a Mississippi John Hurt record and it was the same side on both sides it was scratched it was, it was, it was the same side oh, right. so it's like a kind of an ominous beginning but that I just liked listening to it and playing that's that's what it did and then did and you we did didn't you grow really, up in a musical community no not really uh, my brother always played music he played he was a always a guitar player and then he picked up the violin in the mid mid to early 70s 
when he was playing with uh, what was known as um, Zachary Richard, Ralph Richard, our cousin, our third cousin. They had a band called the Bayou Drifters, him and Michael. And Michael learned how to play fiddle because there was no fiddle player. I did not so realize did you're related to Zachary Richard. Third cousin. Okay. And my mom used to play cards every Friday with his mom. And his, his daddy was the uh, postmaster in Scotland. <laughs> it's not a big world out there. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not in Scotland. How was the mail service? Did he do all right? They didn't deliver. We got our mail from oh, Lafayette okay, yeah, okay. because we lived on the, in, the, on the in between. I do have a bit of a sample of Scott. I went to Scott to pick up some boudin. Uh -huh. um, you could hear a re the record pin drop when I walked in because it's like I needed to buy a lot of boudin. <laughs> I don't think they had seen that many Vietnamese Americans yeah, okay. by that much. It wasn't just you. It was you and a bunch of people? <laughs> no, just oh. me and someone else. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But it, it sounds like, and my impression was, it's kind of a small town. Did you grow up listening to Cajun music being played live? How, no. You and, and your cousin are, are no. established, and your brother are musicians in this genre. How I did, was, I, the first time I ever went to see a Cajun band, I was a senior in high school. I went to Jay's Cockpit Lounge in Cankton. And it was Wayne Toops was playing with a guy named Cammy Doucet, no relation, because it was kind of interesting. What happened was I was, because of my age, in fifth grade in 1967, that's when Codafil, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, was established by James DiMaggio. And in fifth grade, I had my first French class. My folks always spoke French, but mainly for us not to understand what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> They'd sit around the table smoking and drinking and all that, and you'd, say, you'd, know, you'd know what they were talking about. It's like innate. You'd hear it. And even at, if you go to Mass in Scott, the old farmers, they could say rosary in French, but they, they wouldn't understand what the priest was saying in English. They wouldn't understand. So, that they, uh, so some of the old people didn't speak English at all. And so, uh, like I said, in fifth grade, so then there was this interest in the music, so there were festivals, and in 1974 was the first Cajun festival, the Acadian festival. But uh, it's a great for festival. me, like Al, I, I think it was like I said, things came late here. There was the folk boom in Louisiana happened in the 70s, not in the early 60s. So when I was in high school and after playing guitar and got into like Doc and Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt, the the, the next best thing was the Balfour Brothers because it was the only band that I knew of that played acoustically. They were famous for doing that and I, to this day, you know, still playing acoustic guitar. That's what we did a lot of with the original Beausoleil. We played a lot of their stuff, a lot of fiddle tunes, and we played it acoustically. And in fact, we used to do mics, and Al knows that. We'd have a lot of feedback on stage. Mm -hmm. or we couldn't hear each other, especially at the Maple Leaf in clubs. But we, we were adamant, and it's probably in a lot of ways still are, you know, not to, uh, to change it too much. In fact, probably today, the modern Beausoleil is more acoustic than it's ever been since we, you know, we all play through microphones now. But with modern technology, we don't feed back as much because we have in-ear monitors. But uh, that, that was the interest. The interest was to play the folk songs and do that. I didn't even think about the dance scene. And you collect records, and it's all electric. You know, they're all playing steel guitars and bass guitars or, or not. But if you go back even farther to the 30s, you'd hear twin fiddles and a, a F-hole guitar and playing rhythm and stuff like that. And that was all appealing to me. And I thought that, that was the cool thing about it. The, then you get into it, and it's not the same thing. It's just going to stand in a, in a getting drunk in a bar. It's actually a, a real viable music that has songs that mean things. And, uh, and, and like we were lucky to make this story as short as possible. Alan Lomax, who was he and his father, John Lomax, came to Louisiana in 1934, recorded, they call it uncommercial Cajun music, if, if it was commercial anyway, but you know, in the in the midst of all the the record boom and all this, just before the depression, the, the race records, and he he recorded all these ballads that were virtually unknown until Michael heard about this. And I remember our first gig, our first gig ever, we played for LSU at the Sugarcane uh, thing in D.C. It was the LSU, whatever it was, the uh, it had to do with LSU, but we were there. 
we went to the Library of Congress, and one of the guys, Dick Spotswood, you know, knew Michael because they had, they had, uh, Michael had had a couple of grants and they had done stuff, some work with the Lomax stuff. So we went to the Library of Congress to the Folk Department, which if ever you've been to the Library of Congress, it doesn't look like the Library of Congress. It's a little office about the size of a closet. And in the back was this huge freaking machine that was the machine that Lomax had used because they didn't have any place to put it. And it, was, and it came in six pieces. And uh, they had all the cylinders, and he also recorded on discs. So I got to hear that original music, and that, that was the core of the stuff. And once I heard that, I said, that was the cool stuff, because we didn't really play the ballroom music. We would a little bit, but it's nice to mix it up. And that's why the ballads and stuff, and Al knows this, the music that we play sounds a little different than other Cajun bands. Most people here thought we were from Canada. Huh. And they didn't even know that we were, that this stuff came from here. And we're still digging the stuff Localized. out. And, the, and that, that was, and it, saying this right now, it's ironic and important that last year for the Cajun Festival was the 40th anniversary of the Acadian Festival in Lafayette. It was the 50th anniversary of the Balfas, or Dewey Balfa, going to the first Newport Folk Festival and with the Cajun band, and it was 80 years since Alan Lomax had come through Louisiana. So the theme last year was 80, 50, 40, something, or 40, 50, 80, however they said it. So that's why this is, this became, over the years, this became more important, the Lomax stuff. And in the ensuing years, Lomax came to Louisiana at least three or four times and met him many times. You know, he was a very odd person. I don't know if Al ever met him. Never did. Uh, but, you know, it's odd dude, like can Ray Fontenot pulled a knife on him. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, well, he pissed him off. I mean, it he was, wasn't <laughs> beloved by all. He, he was, he had his, I've he had a, that idea a concept and he was trying to make it all the world fit if you've read his biography which is about three inches thick by he was John's driven thing. he was definitely driven, he was driven in his and mission he, he was very unique because he, well we have pandora today if you put in like marty robbins and it'll, it'll choose songs that are similar to marty robbins it was alan lomax that thought of this believe it or not he had the lisa computer the apple computer well but which became Operating System 10, I believe. Oh, really? The original lease. He bought one through a university. He never had a dime. And he wanted what he wanted to do was he called it the music genome, and that's what he was trying to get all this because he figured all music came from pygmies. <laughs> that's where he went kind of... Really? Yes. And all of this stuff, that's what he wanted to do. So today, when we hear that stuff, he, he was the guy that actually started this, believe it or not. Yeah. And if you read the book, it'll tell you that, the biography. So, I mean, yeah. a lot of folk music. He brought a lot of folk music back into the... Right. His back Haitian into stuff the is awesome. Realization of, of musicians everywhere. Al, what's, what was your trajectory into Cajun, Cajun-dom? Not well, it's purely personal. I mean, like I said, I'd listen to, you know, the Balfas and, and Dennis McGee and some older stuff, but it, as, as something I admired from far away, you know. And... Uh, now, were moved, you trained? Were you? No, no, no. I had played. I played since I was a kid. I mean, I, I, my demographic. I was born in 1950, so I'm right smack in the middle of the, the baby boomers. You know, the Beatles came to town when I was 13, right? So you know, I was like, you were a screaming teenage girl exactly. too. I mean, they just you know, <laughs> you we're taking you for all for the ride. So you know, I, I immediately you know got my guitar and I played sax when I was younger. So I had I had some serious music, but. So I, you know, did all that. And then, really, strangely, not, not unlike David, when I was 18, 17, 18, somebody played me a Mississippi John Hurt record, and all was changed. I said, I don't, you know, I put aside my amplified ways and only wanted to play acoustic <laughs> music and guitar at that point. Banjo quickly followed uh-huh. and, you know, played, dug into banjo really hard in my 20s and kind of played fiddle incidentally because I knew all these great fiddle players and it was uh, kind of like, well, gee, you know, you guys could do, do that job because you do it better than me. But I've, I kind of I kept doing it because I, I, it's really fun. It's incredibly hard to fight every step of the way. But but it, when I came, you know, I, I moved to Louisiana because I just had always been interested. I did not come down here with a project of playing Cajun music. And it was certainly not the mission of Dave and his brother. No, to no, and I knew, the, I knew, you know, knew of these guys, and I'd heard them, 
And you know, he came to Louisiana because it was warm. That's really true. That's the true reason. It is the true reason. He was living in Ithaca, New York. New York, and I've never been as cold in my entire life, and I swear I never will be again. But no, David, that is my dirty little secret. As hot as it gets here, you never have to shovel heat. No, exactly. Just turn on the air conditioning. Very well put. Just drown in the humidity. But it was really more of a personal thing. I mean, I got I I say I was doing technical work for 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 Beausoleil well before I played but you know then naturally the musical connections kind of came out and you know Dave and I were friends and well you know why don't you sit in and you know see what happens so I did and you know got to doing it more it was all very gradual you know we were friends and I was spending a lot of time together and it's kind of like well what do musicians do when they spend a lot of time together well they play music, play music. <laughs> so it was <laughs> right, really right. it was kind of it was as organic and simple as that and uh, and you know as I grew grew to know more about it I came to more and more deeply appreciate it even though you know it's not my heritage and I'm not I came came to it, you know, as a grown grown person. But you know, it's incredibly deep stuff, and, and you can't help but be, you know, sucked into the, the you know, just the the content and the you know the emotional reality of it. And, you know, partly the acousticness in these like kind of non-commercial or disenfranchised music everywhere. You know, these old records, it's these old guys, yeah, it's and they're a, singing a, they're singing just right out of their person. You know, right, there's right. there's you can actually yeah. kind of picture uh-huh. what life yeah, was like, yeah. it was especially and, uh, with that song I mean, "Voyage du Mariage." Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty—it's direct in a way that you know, you, I don't—I think is you don't have to be uh, born to it to appreciate. Uh, I, I want to ask a little more about um, how you two ended up being the it thing at the calls on Monday <laughs> night. But uh, <laughs> I want to hear some more war stories first. In mm. this case, literally a war story of. You guys being on tour in the Middle East. Oh, that was that was amazing. It's a blur. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> no, it was. It was. They scared us so much before we went. Set up, set the background up for us. How did you guys get there? How did how did you tour the Middle East? Well, this is how we did it. We we played in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and some CIA guys came to see us play. And they said, "Are you no, making this up?" I'm not making well, this they, up. Well, they 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 say they were actually from the USIS, which is the, the United USIA is a branch <laughs> of the CIA. But, it, uh, but we're all convinced they were CIA. And they said, "Do you want it? We we do these goodwill tours. So you're going to go to Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Kuwait, Kuwait. and uh, you know, are did you, you ever, interested? Did you and ever want to bring get, a lady on the tour no, with just no, for no women? Yeah. You're not going to get paid much, and you know, and you're going to bring you're going to stop in Paris, and you're going to pick up a sound system." And you're going to bring it up. We landed in Orly and left from Charles de Gaulle. So the, the, the guy from the embassy met us there at the airport, loaded up on a steak truck, picked up a, a PA, drove across town to Big Charles de Gaulle. boxes full of stuff. Got on an Air France flight, landed in, what, in, in Cairo at 4 right, o'clock yeah, in the morning, right. then Yemen at 7 but in the morning. What year? 1990. It was the year before the first Gulf War. And here's a little piece of... of uh, info of how unaware people were. They, we, we were... Pretty successful. People seem to like us in the State Department. Yeah, this is cool. These guys are, you know, we're kind of non-threatening. And you were the spies love but, you. Yeah, the but spies. well, anyway, so they wanted to bring us back, and we're sure. These next spring they're having this big event in Baghdad. Baghdad Folk and you Festival. Guys, we want to take you guys to the Baghdad Folk Festival, and we're we're saying, oh sure, sign us up. Not <laughs> you know, gonna happen. And we all know what happened. That, you know, I'll never forget. We were sitting at the next. airport. Here. That's how naive everyone was. We were sitting wow, at the airport in New Orleans. Just a year before. Yeah. And Michael, had, and the band was all leaving from New Orleans, and Al was there. We were all going mm-hmm. somewhere, and Michael said, "This guy Saddam Hussein just invaded Kuwait. It looks like we're not going to go to Baghdad." Said, what, what are you talking about? And that's how that was. And we, of course, we never went. We back. did not go to Baghdad. In the in the airport. So what was what was it like playing for a crowd whose access to American music and and certainly the music you guys were playing wasn't particularly huge. I mean, it well, wasn't most of the time it was embassy people. Yeah, it differed people. from country oh, to country. Okay. A lot of it yeah. was very much in the bubble, in uh-huh. the, in except the, uh, for this Yemen show. diplomatic was, bubble. Which Yemen was the, uh, ex- the uh, it was like a hall, the high school gymnasium. I'll never forget because they, we didn't have the right plugs for their electrical outlets. Yeah, they had given me this huge <laughs> box of every conceivable sort of electrical adapter ever devised. Except the one we man, needed. Except the one we needed. And I'm like, oh, this thing, try to figure this out. And uh, so you, you tell the story. Well, yeah, yeah so yeah. Al, the electrician just. He 
put the wires yeah, in the holes. Yeah, he finally clipped off the plug at the end and just stuck, just jammed the wires right directly. Yeah, so everything the was good until about on you know, with the show. We're playing for this weird the show. rhythm song, this 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 vault, this waltz and two time song. And all of a sudden, the, the electricity goes out in a three block area. Yeah, yeah. We sharted it out the city half a time out of and and uh, they loved it. The crowd loved yeah. it. So that was uh, like our theme song for the trip. And just to show you another another incredible change, although it's been many years now, but uh, Sanaa is actually the old part of Sanaa is unbelievably beautiful and strange. This architecture—it's like nothing yeah. you've ever seen. The country is mountainous and rugged and not desert. Oh, really? Um, not at all. Yeah. And the embassy at the time was right down in the middle of town. They were rebuilding a new and bunker type out the edge of town at the time, but it was not yet occupied. And I got up in the morning, my a couple of times. And I said, well, I think I'll just go for a stroll. And I just walked out of the embassy and went walking around old Sanaa. Jeez. And it was not a thought in my head that mm-hmm. this could be dangerous or they're you know, terrorists. Mm-hmm. Or it wasn't even People on the don't map. like Americans. Uh, but I have Not a thought. Not but not, never but even looked at us. But then, no, it was never a problem. It was Except n- the guards you know, at the airport. Well, that was but in Saudi Arabia. They, they, they the Saudi Arabia, they really didn't like us. But in Yemen, still, you know, they were kind of, I think they, were, they still don't. They were kind of, they, you know, what, you know, what the heck is that? You know, as you walk. But there was never, it never occurred to me that I might be in personal danger, and I wasn't discouraged. Huh. The, that we were actually staying with the ambassador, and he says, "Oh yeah, go out and explore. It's a great city," and that's what I did. But isn't that amazing yeah. that yeah. in that amount of time now? It's a country in a state of, you know, complete chaos and, you know, coming apart. And region, people are, our whole people region. are you know, yeah. literally dying in the streets that I was walking around in, like a tourist. That's so you know, crazy. They were 20, lucky. 25 got to years stay ago. at the embassy. We stayed at the DCM's house, the deputy chief of mission, which was in the outskirts of town. But we had all the, we had the liquor cabinet. <laughs> but they wouldn't let us leave because there was this... Twelve the foot only, fence around us. The this. only liquor cabinet for like miles. No, no they all had. You would you'd be surprised how much yeah. alcohol is in the Middle East. Exactly. Oh, really? oh, absolutely. Of it. And people are obsessed with it. Comes it's all they talk about. Couches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hilarious. <laughs> After this podcast, they'll never let yeah. you back in. Well, it's they true, but, but every we, we would be picked up by embassy staff or people, and invariably we'd go from one to the other. After having just you know been drowned in, in liquor of various. We'd uh, get to the next one, and they'd say, okay, we're going to take you guys to a cocktail party. And this is like the only booze in the entire Middle East. So enjoy yourself. And, uh-huh. and of course, then, you know, more booze. And then you'd boo out of the countries. next thing, and then they'd say exactly the same thing. They were all convinced that <laughs> they, they had the only, only line, you know, on, on alcohol in all of the Middle East. You know, that was an interesting trip, and I remember the, the lead up to it, because Tommy Como couldn't go this trip because it was, it was three weeks it's, long yeah, three, three so plus he couldn't go but we had to take all these shots okay mm-hmm. so Tommy ordered all this gamma goblin and all this junk that we had to take and they were on Lafayette so I had to go and I guess Al too to the uh, to the public dispensary yeah, which is in City Hall I don't think it's there anymore yeah. and so we're traveling throughout America I'll never forget going to all the public health departments I went to the public health department in Seattle mm-hmm. downtown Seattle with Jimmy Bro as navigating, and then uh, in Portland, Oregon, they put you in a bubble. They're like, who? Well, no, no, this was just us trying to get this the was shots. Getting the shots, oh. and so I had to go in. Like, I'm talking like tetanus, of course, and, and, and uh, malaria and all this stuff. And in Phoenix, Arizona, where I walked, and it what it looked like it was only like a mile away, it was actually a five-mile walk. I had to, the guys had to come pick me up, so I got to see what it was like to be in all these, you know, really run-down public health departments, which is, I guess, what ours looks like here, and it, it was awful. All this leading up to, because you're going to get sick. You can't drink water. You can't eat ice cubes. You can't do this. Don't eat lettuce. They will tell us what we can do. I don't think any of us got sick. No. And all the all the the staff people when we got over, we told them the story about all the, all the vaccinations. They, they just laughed. Yeah. You know, you got to be kidding. There's, nobody gets sick over here. It's the desert. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Everything's dead. <laughs> it was fun. It was, it was all kinds of, you know, we could, trust me, we could go on. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, you wanted to know about so, so this guy from CIA, his job was to infiltrate. That's what he would do. His name's Bob Bear. He's still alive. He's a yeah. fisherman. He's lived, lived yeah. or lives in Alaska. He lives in Alaska. He's oh, a fisherman. Really? Yeah, that's what he did on his off time. Where in Alaska? I don't remember. Awesome. Wherever you catch big fish, so he, yeah. you know, in the peninsula. Okay. So he would he would disappear. So he'd be doing all this. We figure you're spying, but he to travel. <laughs> he had this stack of things called G bats. And G-bats are all these baggage things that, like, you know, where you had heavy baggage. And we could get up to, like, a ton of equipment on every 
commercial airplane. So when it, the trip was, we had we were heavier than we we. The sound thought. system was huge. I mean, it was yeah. you know, so gigantic crates and you know. Old stuff, older stuff. Well, yeah, we were going to run out of G bats, so they drove <clears throat> the stuff from Mecca, or whatever Mecca is called. What was Mecca called? Jeddah. Jeddah yeah. to Dharan, which was not in the empty quarter, but they drove it and said, "Y'all could go too, but we're afraid you might get hijacked, Kid- kidnapped, yeah. kidnapped along the way." <laughs> so we had to fly. And that's I was really was, tempted to go. I know. I really I was wanted really to do it too. Tempted. How many times you get to see a desert? Yeah, I mean, Holy like cow! Riding across the desert with it in the back of a cargo truck, you know, a steak like, truck. Yeah, right. With the a bunch only hangup, you know, right? Stuff. The only hangup is you might get kidnapped. Yeah. Well, there's that. But you know, the stuff arrived. It was it was a wild trip. I mean, it's it's you think of it. And I bet you all of that place, the the cities, not not the ones that were bombed. Kuwait City was a beautiful city, but I'm sure that Abu Dhabi. Well, I know it is. It's it's probably grown 15 times. Yeah, yeah. Huge, it's very modern now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bahrain was known as the place where it was the loosest of all the Arab countries, and you know, you, you know, it, it was all really cool, and also it had those graves that were really neat, yeah, and that's where they had that's the beach party that, that uh, where they roasted a pig and had a, a mound of rice, yeah. and everyone was fully thing. covered. More, not really. <laughs> no, no, not this was this no. was. It's a myth. It, yeah, no, this is yeah, this was. <laughs> was the big law. <laughs> it was fun. We had a great time. Fun. back to the United States and you guys were kind of the first I don't think kind of the first Cajun band to win a Grammy we were given the kind of mission oriented which ended up sounded like maybe you didn't start out that way but it, it seemed like it felt like a mission to kind of get this music back on people's radar no you just liked it you no wanted- we just put out records uh, <laughs> the first time we were nominated was 1986 and I think uh, <coughs> Michael went and uh, to the to the show. It would used to alternate between New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. And that was the old Grammy organization, NARIS, is what it was called, uh, in 1986 for a record that actually I don't even think we recorded as a reissue. And uh, it got to be a joke. We were the Susan Lucci of, of, of music. <laughs> but every year we get nominated for a record. And Norman Thomas, or the, 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 if you're the from, always ran. Or if you're from New Orleans, like the Frank Brightson of, of before Florida won his beer, first beer I, I like Su- Susan Lucci but without the hair, I guess. No, you'd never want to. It, it, we did, we, there was no way in, we'd ever consider that we'd be uh, win. So... The years I remember, we were nominated probably eight times before we won. And one year was, it was Bruce Springsteen did his Tom Joad record. That was in the folk category. One year was Bob Dylan was in it. He won that. The Bulgarians' women's choir won. John Prine uh, lost years, which is one of his greatest uh, records. The Indigo Girls, my sweat runs clean. I'll never forget that. And then one was uh, who was the other one? The Oh shoot! Oh, Lady Smith, Black Mombasa. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, this, yeah, so and tragically, we lost. <laughs> we yeah, lost all yeah, those yeah. years some except the year that we won. Competition. There were three Cajun bands. There was the Hackberry Ramblers, who had been playing together full time since 1930. Whoa! It was like their 70th year in business. And Joel Saunier, who won this past uh, Grammy, he didn't talk to us for at least five years. He thought yeah. he was going to win. 
I, I'm, you know, yeah. But there were three bands. So then our, our chances, kids come in and take our Cajun were, Grammy. Yeah. So our chances were really good that year. So that's the year we won. And we all happened to be in New York or on the East Coast, and we drove down from wherever, Massachusetts, and went to the show, which was, you know, that would never happen today because it, it, it just, it was going to be. So we're all on the show, and that's how that worked out. The second time we won was when the Grammy organization decided they wanted to start a Louisiana music category. So that was, you know, and so if you have like no name Cajun band and you have Beausoleil, who are you going to pick? And that, that's how that, <laughs> you know, because they never really listened to the records. What was the impetus for, do, do, do you know? What People complain. It's just like there used to be a polka category, and Jimmy Stir won. Oh, I'd say 20 years worth of Grammys in polka because he'd get on the phone and call off all his friends, please vote for me. And so they eliminated the polka category and put it under the Americana category or parts of American Roots is what mm -hmm. it is. Because Americana is different. That's the yeah, singer-songwriter. stuff, yeah, American Roots. But it's all in the Americana category. So they, they rearranged the whole thing. But I'm surprised that they created... Year to year, yeah. yeah. They, I'm surprised they cre actually created a category for Louisiana There was a lot roots. of... Uh, well, petitioning for that, but even that's coming gone. They yeah, it's gone. Now. Yeah, right. Yeah. They took it away. But yeah, I know. But how, how did it get there in the first place? It's well, one out of Terrence Simeon and and his wife realized that no other band from Louisiana or Cajun band is ever going to win a Grammy award. So they petitioned not only to have the rock, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in New Orleans, but they wanted the Grammy Hall of Fame in New Orleans, which n neither of which happened. But they they petitioned that and and uh, they started their own chapter. There was one in Memphis, and they had a subchapter in New Orleans, and they petitioned it year after year until they finally said, "All right, we're going to make a category." I think that, that the five years they had the category, <laughs> there must have been a hundred different main categories, and the Grammys lasted five hours on TV, and the pre pre show lasted five hours, so ten hours. And they said, "This is way too long." Yeah, they kept so making more and more, more, more categories. categories. They, 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 they pared it back across the board. They, they, was actually, they reduced more, yeah. more and yes. more categories yeah, exactly. every year. There was a period where it was going the other way, though. Uh -huh. We vote on that now. So I'm a member of the thing. So you, you, they said I they mean, you kind of vote on it. It's like they tell you, these are the ones that we're going to wipe out. Do you agree? You're like, I mean. Yes, you have to vote on it. <laughs> it's all about the base, the <laughs> base, the base. <laughs> I knew that oh, was going to win, too. So, so um, <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first on Milo's yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All about the bass. <laughs> bring it. Bring also, Taylor to... Smith's song when she won three years ago. I knew that. Taylor Smith. No, no, no. Taylor, what's her Swift. name? Swift. Taylor Swift. <laughs> Sorry, bro. Not your yeah. bass player. Not to be confused. I'm here to tell you. You, got, you always know what's going to win. You, you have the nicest thing about being a member of the Grammy organization is, and if, if you're a real bootlegger, you can do this. You have access to all of the nominated music so you can actually go listen to it whether you want to or not you yeah. have access uh, you know and they've actually changed because i was a member long ago and it was a lot i remember when we the ballots would come in you wouldn't know who any of these people were and you'd give it to all the guys in the band and say, well, we they've actually tightened it up and it, they're trying to be a respectable organization it's not the original guy that started it and they really care because it looks bad when it, it's not done right so you know they have different groups of people that get together and they nominate these things and they work, they listen to it, you actually listen to it. And I think it's, it's more fair than it ever has been. Not that it means doodly squat, but it's still cool. And it's fun to be a part of it, you know. And uh, like I said, I like being able to hear the music because there's a lot out there that I would never buy or listen to. I don't even know how you listen to it. I don't even know what radio is. What <laughs> station do you put it on to hear this stuff? So it's kind of neat to have You're still on vinyl. You're mm. still no, no, no. I, I do all this stuff, but how would you, you know, find out about these people they now I feel like they now send you their stuff you're like ah I have like 40 things in my inbox Blah. But I don't get that you don't <laughs> I gotta get off some list or yeah, yeah. and yeah, that's how the that's how it worked with the first Grammy though it was really you know it was a shock because actually we were all there so he's joking yeah, yeah. So we got up and went. It was a good party. The party. Was good. <laughs> got to see Ron, you know, what's the, the Ron Carter party? Yeah, Ron Carter. That was, I looked out, told this story to Taylor. I mean, they have these various sort of little rooms with parties, and, you know, the big stars are bigger. And there's, you know, the sort of little off chamber. There's Ron Carter with this incredible quartet.
I was standing as close to his base as I was to you, just leaning in, just listening to this guy. Nobody was, nobody cared. Huh. I was in heaven. I mean, just, you know, it was that intimate. And this whole madness going around, you sit there and, like, absorb this unbelievable jazz jazz group, young and old. It was, it was really, that was... So good stuff does happen at the Grammys. It right. was wonderful music. It's not the image I get now when I yeah. when they send me stuff. There's a lot of um, L.A. in it. It's well, it's been L.A. Yeah. In it. This yeah. was in New York, and I think it was very different. You know, could be. It's changed. Be. Yeah, they've moved it all to L.A. So explain a little bit how. So now you have a duo thing. You got your. Oh, that was their question. Yeah, this is how this started. The Columns Fr- Hotel. So friends of mine opened up the Kingpin Bar, which is at Lions in Britannia, and Steve Watson is a big fan of music, he used to work at the Continental Club in Austin. And he said one day, I used to, that used to be one of my watering holes, I'd sit there at the bar and he was a bartender. And he said, why don't you come play on, on Sundays? So I call up Al and ask Steve at the loves Kingpin. Al. At the Kingpin. Yeah. So we used to play in the jungle room in the back to nobody. Mm, yeah. So we'd sit there and, and work out these songs to no one. Which because was a local bar, local yeah. kind of divey bar back then too? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. They had just, just become it. the local divey bar, yeah. Okay. And so it was like Sunday night football. So like nobody was in the back unless there was someone that wanted to really hear this. And then a friend of mine who hung out at the bar, he was at Tulane, he was graduating in pre-law, law, and there was at Loyola. He was a bartender at the Columns. He said, why don't you come and audition for the Crepels? So we, we played one Monday in the Crepels with us. And, and Miss Crapel liked it because that's my Grammy winners, is what she calls mm-hmm. Alan. That's my the, Grammy yeah, winners. Yeah. So sweet. So that's, we've been there <laughs> and since. And the rest is history. Since 2002, like, 2003. Uh-huh. But most people don't know, you know, we, we really just started playing there about three years ago. But that, that no one understood that we've been there forever. forever yeah. At the columns, you've been there forever. Yeah, well, too. But they don't know that. Yeah, How long have you been playing yeah, here? Yeah. Yeah. You just started playing yeah, here? Yeah. <laughs> You when knew you in town? La- I thought, you live in New Orleans? I thought you lived in Lafayette. <laughs> they still still get that. But your repertoire is, is a little more old time. There's some old time there. Yeah. There's we, some yeah. yeah. We, well, I like old time music, too. And we, we end up playing too much Cajun music, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I'd like to play more of the other <laughs> stuff. Well, because I worked out these songs, you know. And, and I was, he was an engineer on a couple of records, that I solo records. So we, he knows the stuff. And the songs that I look for for Cajun music are the ones that, the odd, a lot of lyrics that actually can be adapted on guitar. That's the hard part is to find them and then uh, and do them. And I like to play, like I said, we play Mississippi John Hurt, play some Doc Watson stuff, play Marty Robbins. We both love old time country music. So I try to throw that in there. And then, uh, oh, sometime before Katrina, my nephew came and sat in with me at the columns and he said, Uncle David, why don't you play a card? And I forgot that I knew how to play a card. Yeah, right. Uh, so he <laughs> Too brought many me instruments, a, you lost track. Yes, and he brought me in a card. He said, here, play this one. That's the one I have at the house. And then Al bought one, and I play Al's once a week. So we don't get together to play, unfortunately. We don't practice very much. So we just get there on Mondays. So it, it seems stagnant or stale if you go hear us every week. But what we do is every, it's never the same. Because we always change it up. It's all changed yeah. up in how you play it. Because it's, music is, uh, unless I guess you're reading off of a sheet of paper, it never sounds exactly the same. It's always different in you know, whatever mood you're in or how you hit the notes or whatever new lick you learn, you know, a new passage or something that you want to, let me try this. So it's always fun. It's fun to do, and it's, uh, it's, it's what we do on Mondays. You know? So, yeah, so the, the old-time stuff is always last, although I've had requests, why don't you play this first? And it, it, never, it never works out. It, it, it's, like, it's like putting on your pants backwards or something. <laughs> Could the, be done, but why would you? This stuff warms right. you up yeah, to yeah, play yeah, the yeah, other yeah. stuff is what it is. So that's how it works. Okay. I think that's probably accurate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the audience ask some questions. They've given you a lot of material to ask about. So I know that y'all made a recording of the duo at some point. When are you ever gonna release? Because <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to that. I yeah. go to the show and yeah, buy a CD. Yeah, yeah. So the crazy release party. It's been like three or four years ago. It's more, more than that. Now. Okay, I know. It was the like summer after Katrina. Oh, was it? Was it? <laughs> That's more than three or four years so, ago. Yeah. No, we've got this. You know, whole vault of uh, recorded material. I don't um, know. <laughs> Lazy. 
Well, yeah. In fact, we play that, it better now. You and see, that seems dated, right? Exactly. It's dated. We have yeah, to go back yeah, and redo the whole thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's my problem. That's <laughs> so much like that. It's, it's uh, like, you never know. Maybe if we yeah. get you know excited and all that, we go do that and re-record it because it's really easy. To, yeah. You know, it's really easy to redo. No, we it. have you know, I've got the studio and we can definitely do I it. I think we've gotten like, be we've gotten to be better musicians. Yeah, so we have. We've really grown and we've learned. You know, we've learned our interaction, everything. You never thought about touring just the two of you. Yeah, but it's a lot less gear to carry around. It's hard to get a job. It's like hard to get a gig in New Orleans, for example. You know, it's like that there are no fans. We're lucky to have one. Uh, think about it every once in a while. In fact, I got a call last week, and they were interested in all the different configurations that I do. So you never know. We might be doing something at the National Folk Festival or something like that. You just don't know. There you go. It's hard with my schedule because I never know what I'm doing in, uh, with Beausoleil. Uh, you know, it's, it's, being home is kind of special in a way. Uh-huh because it's, it's hard out there in the real world. It's kind of fun to be at home. But uh, we don't travel as much as we used to. So I mean, I'm trying to make the transition that maybe Al and I can go do this, go do some, some music somewhere. Oh, yeah, away from New Orleans. It'd be fun. You're moving from just the odd couple to yeah, something right. a little more like marriage. Odder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we do it differently, he's going to drive his car and I'll drive mine. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah all right. We'll meet you, meet you at the loading dock. That's how we need to be there? Plenty of bands that do that. No, we're working on it. But about a recording, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe next but, Christmas we'll have yeah. a Christmas release. There you go. We gotta buy that duplicating machine. You see, because we <laughs> we like to control all aspects. Yeah, of right. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's that horizontal or vertically, uh, um, you know, what's that word? Oh yeah, vertical. The integration. Yeah, yeah. So you grew up in Scott. Your whole family's there. The band's there. You live in New Orleans for the past thirty some years. So what keeps you here? What brought you here? And I came in New Orleans in 1984 to work at the World's Fair that nobody knew about. <laughs> uh, I was a music what? programmer. Uh, uh, I didn't even know there was a World's yeah. Fair in New Orleans. And uh, a very close friend of mine said, you know, you, I, was, I had graduated from, uh, I got a master's degree in English in 1983, and there were no jobs then. That's when Ronald Reagan was president, and there was no more tenure. And so actually pursuing an, another academic degree was not a good idea. And in February of 1984, we weren't doing very much as Beausoleil, you know, occasional trips, you know, but uh, I decided that I called up the World's Fair and found the Louisiana Folklife Pavilion, and they all knew who I was, and I said, y'all got any job openings? And they said, yeah. I said, do you want to work here? So I had to fill out, a, make a resume, and they hired me, and so I moved here in May, May the 10th, no, March the 10th of uh, 2000, no, 1984, and ironically, the house that I lived in was where my grandmother lived when she went to Turo Nursing School in 1919. And she went to school. Coincidentally? These, or? Yeah, it was co totally coincidence. I had no idea. These two old ladies downstairs that were still alive then had gone to uh, school together. And in fact, the first time I met the old lady, one of the old ladies said, who's your grandmother? She had this rough voice. And she was about this tall, about yeah. four foot tall. And I said, Lucille LeBlanc, from Scott? <laughs> and she got all excited and said, yeah. And so, uh, and in fact, after my mother died, she died after my father. I was in the house going through all the pictures and found a photograph of my grandmother sitting on the front porch of that apartment building, which is still there. And so I decided that I'd have to live in the shadow of Turo Infirmary for the rest of my life. That's where you've been ever since. Yeah. That's where I've been, which is, you know, that's where I live, in the shadow yeah, of Turo so. Infirmary. Good question. Yeah, right, yeah. Definitely album Did title in that, right. Yeah, there was a gondola. You could you could get on the gondola and cross the Mississippi the during yeah. the, uh, the uh, fireworks every yeah. night, and that was the you know there's always a long line. But you see, we were working, and the the fireworks would start at ten twenty five, and actually went off the clock at ten. So if you if you ran down to the line, you could get in line and. Uh, You'd be like midway over the river and you could see the fireworks. Yeah, they were supposed to like leave that thing in place and it, they, it immediately stopped. It was really kind of sad. It would be very cool, wouldn't it, to have a, have a gondola over the river? I mean, you know, down there, the river walk. That's well, we're all gonna, gone now. We're going to wrap up soon. Is there anything you want to share about y'all's future plans? I guess you already shared the big Christmas release oh, that yeah, we're I'll all going to be waiting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's May. It's May. Come over see. I'm guessing you don't have a website, or do you? Nah. But we can catch you every Monday at, at the columns. Every Monday at the columns, unless we're not there. That's that's what I tweet every week, unless we're not there. I tweet. 
I have a Facebook thing. So does Apple. Yeah, yeah, we've all got Facebook. I always announce Check them out. I put Check it on the Most Life page that we're playing. And uh, some people, you'd be surprised. Most of the people are Most Life fans, and they've seen Al and me play, and they come to town. And uh, that's why the, 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 there are a lot of retirees, and they, they, they just love music, and they come to New Orleans, and they come on there on Monday nights because there's not that much going on after we finish. It's when John Fole starts at uh, Dos Jefes. It used to be Papa Gross Funk, but I think they're retired now. But uh, so yeah, it's like a, it's, it's kind of an interesting Monday. So yeah, that's what we do, and we are on Facebook and we do tweet, so you can find us. Oh, you're you're a tweeter. I tweet. I tweet. I'm the I'm the social director for Bosa Ah, uh-huh. yeah. okay. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, guys. Thank you. A lot of fun. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for listening to Milo's Music Parlor. Thanks so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. This has been a production of It's New Orleans and Milo Records New Orleans and sponsored by WTUL. And a very special thanks today to Al Tharp and David Dusay. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Our show today was produced by Kim Voodin and Taylor Smith. Our technical director is Taylor Smith. Our logistics director is Mark Tobler. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Roman Jasmine. Milo's Music Parlor was recorded today at Tassology Art Cafe, located on the historic O.C. Haley Boulevard in New Orleans. For more information on how to attend one of our live performances, check us out at www.milorecordsneworleans.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Milo Music Parlor shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, Midnight Menu Plus One, and Louisiana Eats. Milo's Music Parlor is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and Milo Records New Orleans. For everyone here at Milo's Music Parlor, thanks for joining us today. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.